0: Oh my gosh, it is day one post-discovery. The show has now aired.
1: Yes, I'm so excited.
0: I feel like my life has changed forever. I feel like I'm starting a new job. When I woke up this morning, I'm like, this is not like anything I've ever experienced before. The world is different now.
1: (laughs) We're in a post-new Star Trek world.
0: (laughs) We're in a world where Star Trek exists, which of course, as we said, hasn't been true for over a dozen years.
1: Yeah, Star Trek on TV anyway.
0: Yeah, so this show is all about Star Trek Discovery, which premiered last night on CBS. And I do want to mention something we've overlooked in our debut episode of this podcast, which is that it's a spoiler cast. We're expecting that people listening have seen the show we're discussing. So if you haven't seen it yet and you want to, this might be a good time to log off and go check it out on CBS. Right. Right.
1: Uh, how did your CBS experience go, Ken?
0: It was fine. I installed the CBS All Access app on my PlayStation 4, Xbox 360, and Apple TV. I had signed up for CBS All Access using our affiliate code. If anybody wants to sign up, transporterlock.com slash CBS. We'll get you a free one-week trial. And as soon as the show started delayed due to sports ball or something, uh, the app loaded right up, and it worked great. How about you? Excellent.
1: I used the web interface. And again, once I discovered the delay, because um, internet and sports ball, but um, it took about three minutes for it to actually show up. I kept uh, refreshing various clips from Discovery and other shows. Like, no, CBS, I don't care about these other shows. I'm only giving you my money for the show. Exactly. But it finally aired and it was, it was, uh, it went well, it went well.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot to talk about. We're going to try to keep this episode to be no longer than the episode we're talking about. So let's start at the beginning. Not the very beginning. We'll talk about the opening credits. But the opening sequence has Commander Michael Burnham and Captain Georgiou on a desert planet. And it seems like they are trying to violate the Prime Directive. Was that your understanding as well?
1: Yeah, violate. they were trying to. Uh, what was the wording they used? They're trying to um, steering clear of General Order One uh, by going in here. So basically, yeah, they're doing what Star Trek captains do all the time: is try to skirt around the Prime
0: Directive. So General Order One—that's like the Prime Directive, but it hasn't been named as such yet.
1: It's probably been named. It's just—it's also what it's called. It's General Order One. I think that's what they would call it in TOS. For here and there too.
0: But do you think anybody who's watching Star Trek for the first time would have understood that?
1: Nope, nope. That was totally for us.
0: (laughs) So, I don't know. It seemed like sort of a throwaway scene where they introduce us to this alien planet that lays eggs, but then we never see them again. It was probably more about the relationship between these two members of Starfleet and how they've been working together for seven years.
1: That's exactly what it was. It was the show that uh, Captain Georgiou and Burnham have a connection, and they have for seven years. Mm Mm-hmm. It was very lighthearted.
0: And it's all about trusting each other, including trusting one's ability to leave footprints in a dust storm and have them not be blown away.
1: <laughs> she did a very good job of recreating the Starfleet Delta.
0: She did, and the ship noticed it and flew into the atmosphere, which is pretty cool.
1: Uh huh. Uh huh.
0: I think chronologically in the Star Trek universe, the first time we saw a starship of that size enter the atmosphere was probably Voyager when it landed on a planet.
1: Yeah, uh, I remember when Voyager did his landing protocols. Everyone was, oh my God, it can land. I mean, we, we knew it, but we actually got to see it. And that was amazing. Seeing a ship coming into the atmosphere was pretty cool. Because otherwise, in like, next gen, when that would happen, it was this big, huge ordeal, and the ship was going to heat up and die and blow up.
0: Right. The reason Gene Roddenberry invented the transporter was because he couldn't figure out how to land the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. But in the Discovery pilot, they didn't land the Shenzhou. It just came into the atmosphere to skirt around the interference that they could beam them up. Yeah. Sort of the best of both worlds.
1: Ha, ha, ha,
0: ha. So then... uh, I appreciate how you humor me, Bri. This is going to be a (laughs) lovely several weeks of doing this every week. Thank you. So they fly off from the planet, and they go to investigate a communication relay that has been mysteriously damaged.
1: Yes, yes, and... uh... We, as viewers, can make an assumption as to what happened, because the, before the scene with uh, Captain Georgiou and Burnham, we got a view of the Klingons.
0: That's right. And the Klingons are speaking what the original series might have called Klingonese, yeah, which Klingon. later shows just called Klingon, with English subtitles.
1: I'm glad we got to see them just speaking Klingon. I, I fear that... Okay, I didn't fear. Um, it didn't feel as guttural... As Klingon has become in later years, it's sounded like just common speech of a different language. I'm not sure if I'm getting my meaning very well or clear through, clear here.
0: Are you saying they m- made actual changes to Klingon vocabulary and syntax?
1: I don't know. It didn't. Like, Klingon sounds very harsh and angry. None of these Klingons sounded that way.
0: Do you think that's because we're accustomed to hearing just individual words in the context of English dialogue?
1: It's possible. We usually hear in like the movies or whatever, we hear like a sentence or two in Klingon and then everything is English. So it's possible. But it just it didn't feel right to me. Not necessarily wrong. It, okay, different. It felt different. And I'm not sure if it's good different yet or bad different or no no problem different. I mean.
0: Well, it was certainly the opposite context where we had a long Klingon monologue punctuated with the English phrase, we come in peace.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that.
0: What, what did you love about that?
1: They were almost kind of mocking, mocking humanity and Federation. And having that line and having him say it in English was great. And then he, later on, oh, never mind. That was different.
0: Ah. Uh, <laughs> do you think that they find that phrase threatening because it's a lie or because they find peace threatening since they're a warlike species?
1: I think they find it's a lie. They feel the Federation is encroaching on their territory. Uh, that's a common theme in Star Trek, where people think, like, the Federation views itself as this great, benevolent, amazing group of people, while other races who are not in the Federation see it as people who are expanding beyond their territory and who are trying to make everyone one the big, happy Federation.
0: That's also a common theme in a lot of sci-fi, including John Scalzi's Old Man's War, where humanity is just like a virus that's just spreading across all these boundaries and barriers to infect all these planets. And other alien races are like, whoa, 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 this is our turf. And so it seems like the Klingons are taking a preemptive strike against this encroachment and this expansion.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Hmm. So they get to the satellite, and they find this uh, obscured object in the asteroid belt, which they look at with an actual telescope.
1: I loved that. I saw that telescope in the background, like the scene just prior to it. I'm like, oh, that's cool that she has that. I feel like, you don't see the captains have that. And all of a sudden, next scene, it becomes relevant.
0: I did not see that in the background. I thought they just whipped it out of thin air.
1: Uh, nope, nope, it was there.
0: Oh, that's clever. I need to watch the show again.
1: There's also a space chess set.
0: <laughs> there's a what now?
1: Space chess set.
0: Way oh, in the oh, like a like the 3D chess set?
1: So her, her radio room, Captain uh, Georgiou's radio room, also seems to double as the um, the observation lounge or um, situation room, as it were in like, Enterprise, where mm. there's a table and chairs. And in the background, you can see the space chess set.
0: Yeah, it almost seems like also a museum of Star Trek artifacts, because I understand if you look closely enough, the books on her shelf are each episodes of TOS.
1: Oh really? I didn't. I didn't catch that.
0: There's like the city on the edge of forever and metamorphosis. Nice. nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you would know that unless you were on the set looking, because I don't think it's that detailed.
1: Yeah, maybe it was just the way I viewed it, unless I had like a 4K TV.
0: <laughs> oh, that's nice. Wow.
1: I do not. I just said if I had one.
0: Oh, I, I'm sorry. You know what? I'm gonna have to rewatch this episode at my mom's house because I just bought her a new 4K TV, and she now has a nicer TV than I do. Nice. Yeah, and she wants to watch Discovery anyway, so I'll rewatch it there. <laughs> So they need to take a closer look and Michael decides she's just going to fly out there in her spacesuit.
1: Yeah, this is this almost seems like a nod to Into Darkness.
0: Oh, when Pine, uh, not Pine Kirk and Khan go flying across. Yep,
1: yep. I mean, it may not have been but I think it's just kind of little homage to it or like hey, this is a thing the Starfleet officers do.
0: You know, it's interesting because the space outfit that she was wearing looked somewhat similar to what we saw in Star Trek Into Darkness, the movie, and very different from any suit we saw on the original series back in the 60s.
1: Yes, and it's also a, I think it's very much the budget thing. I mean, it's, that's going to be a continuing theme throughout the entirety of Discovery versus TOS or any of the earlier TV shows is budget, budget, budget.
0: As in Discovery has a bigger one?
1: Yeah, Oh, and product of its time as well. Things have just changed in the real world.
0: Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of fan series like Star Trek Continues where they actually do try to replicate the look and feel of the 60s show, and sometimes with the same actors. I feel like Discovery understands that they are manifesting the idea behind the show without taking it super literally.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they had the same problem with Enterprise when that came out. People are like, "Why do you have all these flat screen displays?" Like, "Well, it's because it's 2001. That's why."
0: Right, and now we have holographic communicators, which we didn't see except a few times on DS9 before they canceled it.
1: Yeah, in D Space Nine, it was a different thing. I think they were going for a let's try to see if we can have these conversations between two people seem more real. So they actually had the actors in the same room, which I thought that was kind of cool. Now that I think in retrospect, everyone hated it at the time, but um, so they seemed to bring that technology back, but. They still use the hologram. I don't it's it's neat. I like it, but it definitely is out of place in the if you go by technological canon.
0: Right. Although I think it is reasonable to expect that based on where we are today in twenty seventeen, by the time the Shenzu launches, we would have holographic communicators. Absolutely. So I, I don't know, maybe back in the sixties they didn't know just how quickly we would progress. So Michael flies out into the asteroid belt and she finds the satellite and it's supposed to be a look only, she decides to physically land on it.
1: Of course, just a flyby. You know when she says, just a flyby, straight into the camera. It's not going to be just a flyby.
0: I was a little naive. I figured she'd stay out there longer than I expected, and just the fact that she got so close enough that she could touch it, I thought that was her pushing the boundaries. But when she actually touched it, I thought that was absurd.
1: It did, it did feel a little off for a Starfleet officer, but maybe it's not off for Burnham.
0: True, we don't know her that well, but not only is she Starfleet, even though she's not technically on the science track, I think all Starfleet officers are, to a degree, scientists, and you don't interfere with something that you're trying to observe.
1: That's what we know of Star Trek, but you know what, TOS. I don't know if Kirk was always that uh careful either.
0: That's true. Maybe I'm just thinking the fact that she is number one, and on TOS, number one was Spock, who was the science officer, whereas here, that role seems to be played more by Lieutenant Saru, played by Doug Jones. Yes. And we'll get to him, but... Okay,
1: actually, I could see her doing this as an interest, because she is a xenoanthropologist. She is fascinated by this... Um,
0: Michael? Uh, Burnham. Burnham. Oh, that's right, she did say that.
1: Uh-huh, so she... um. So she would be absolutely fascinated by an object such as this and want to get a closer look.
0: That's right. She did say if she was trapped on that desert planet for 89 years, she would try to integrate with the local aliens or whatever. Correct. Okay, cool. And then finally we see an an armored Klingon.
1: Yeah, a Klingon spacesuit. That was kind of neat to see. I I liked how the computer was recognizing trying to scan it without using biology and notice the klingon iconography
0: and the batleth
1: yeah the batleth the batleth i have mixed <laughs> feelings about the batleth
0: what i thought you would love it
1: it didn't look like the batleth that we know oh and so n- wondering... n-
0: so now you're being literal
1: yeah now i'm being literal there's a few things i'm wondering a few things we could, we could i could can i could, i can reason or uh, rationalize this i'm thinking like maybe they just haven't experienced many batleths and the it just sees blade a computer does.
0: So CBS can change the complete vernacular and taxonomy of the Klingon language. But if they change a single curvature on the Batleth, ooh, they're going to hear from Sabriel.
1: Yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Priorities, and they may man. not have
1: changed the Klingon language. It just sounded different to me. Sure,
0: sure. Okay. So th- maybe I'm going a little bit of order. But this thing that she landed on in the asteroid belt was mm-hmm. a beacon. Yes. C- can you help me understand what that is?
1: Watching it again, it was still a little confusing because apparently it was an ancient device. So I mean, it a, it's a thing that, um, okay, I'm wondering. This is not any foreknowledge. So these Klingons who are on the ship were following some prophecy. So I'm guessing they discovered, they finally found this artifact that was built here years ago. And they lit it, it was, uh, later in the episode. Um, they light the beacon. And uh, so we'll get to it a bit. And so I think it's an ancient Klingon artifact. But the show did not do a very good job of describing that.
0: Well, that would explain why Michael's observations about the beacon were that it w- it seemed ancient and she couldn't tell if it was carved or manufactured. So this is not, it's a Klingon artifact. Is it, is it Klingon or is it something that the Klingons found?
1: Oh, actually, that's a good question. Uh, that's a good point. Um, we don't know yet.
0: Because I felt a little bit like I was watching the TNG episode Tin Man, where they find this ancient thing in an asteroid belt and they don't know what it is. <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And then all of a sudden it lights up and blasts everybody with light and sound. Just like Tin Man.
1: Yeah. Hey, you're right. Actually, hmm. <laughs> it's very possible there's a relation that we don't know about
0: yet. If they're trying to make this a show for newcomers to join Star Trek, it probably isn't. But the similarities were, for me...
1: You're right. I did not think about that at
0: all. So this beacon is kind of like the Flames of Gondor. When you light the torch, all your troops rallied to the the cause.
1: Yeah, so whatever it was, the Klingons knew what it was. They knew to come to that location. All 24, or all the other 24 houses.
0: But, houses. But why did they come? Because it yeah. seems there was already a cloaked Klingon ship waiting right off the port of the Shenzhou, and they couldn't detect it. Apparently cloaking technology is unknown to the Federation.
1: Uh, that was, that's another tricky one, because it's not unknown. So uh, I, there's some talk in the second episode I don't want to say yet, but it's not really spoilery. I just don't want okay. to tell anyone if you haven't seen it. It's not its not a spoiler, I swear, but I'm not going to do it just in case because I know there's purists out there.
0: We'll save that commentary for the next episode of Transporter Lock. Yes. Because I have not seen the second episode yet. You have. You uh-huh. jumped ahead. So you have a more informed perspective on the pilot episode than I do.
1: But I wrote detailed notes again on my second viewing of the first episode to be careful about spoilers and hinting and alluding.
0: So your notes are two columns. Like, do talk about this, don't talk about this.
1: More or less, yeah.
0: (laughs) But but I even have
1: (laughs) a some kind of count. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In Voyager, it was common. It's actually any Star Trek series. It's common to hear, what is this? It's some kind of field. It's some kind of thing. And I started a some kind of tally for
0: Disco- That's right. And then you've seen the, mu- the some kind of music video. Yes. That is awesome. I will include a link in the show notes. <laughs> However, the one Klingon ship that is cloaked is gargantuan compared yeah. to the Federation starship. They don't need reinforcements to take on this lone starship.
1: It's a massive, massive behemoth of a ship, and all it does is sit there. And we don't get any indication of its power, though.
0: Right. I mean, it reminded me of the Romulan Scimitar from Star Trek Nemesis.
1: Yeah, yeah, it seemed to... It seemed to... I don't know if it's a callback to that, but it did seem like, wow. Like, where are they hiding this all these years? Almost yeah. Like, what was it, Uh, the Negvar class in the, in the TNG DS9 era? I think that's what it
0: was. Oh, it might be. My knowledge isn't quite that detailed, but... <laughs> but yeah, it Sorry. definitely seems like the Klingons are overcompensating for something. That ship is huge.
1: <laughs> uh, we don't like to talk about it, Ken. <laughs>
0: All right, so eventually Michael, in a very precarious state of health, makes her way back to the Shenzhou. She gets teleported back in, undergoes some medical treatment, and when the Klingons uncloak, she runs back to her room and she calls who we think is her stepfather, Sarek of Vulcan.
1: Uh, Her her ward, he even says.
0: Oh, I didn't hear that word. Okay. Yeah, he
1: says, I took you as my ward.
0: It was interesting that I, I don't know what... Uh, I don't know what Vulcans refer to each other as, like father and son. Like I never heard Spock call Sarek dad.
1: Your father.
0: That's true. That's very formal. I wasn't sure what Michael would call Sarek.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know if we ever heard that.
0: Other than just Sarek, because there was a brief flashback where we see Michael growing up on Vulcan in much the same way we saw Spock growing up in the 2009 film.
1: Yeah, we got to see the learning modules.
0: That's right, and she has this Vulcan wardrobe and Vulcan haircut and not pointy ears, so she's very human. And we know that she was raised by the Vulcans. Well, we don't know why the Vulcans specifically and Sarek specifically, but we know that her birth parents were slaughtered by the Klingons.
1: Right, there was some terrorist attack by Klingons, and he took her in uh, on a Vulcan human science station.
0: Which sounds a lot like... Humans taking Worf in after his family was slaughtered at the massacre at Kittimer.
1: You're right, you're right.
0: So it's almost like she's some sort of a reinterpretation or mirror image of Worf, where instead of like this warrior race being raised by a very emotional race, it's a very emotional human being raised by a very logical race.
1: But the difference here would be, it's interesting that Worf did not go back to his Klingon peoples because the Klingons weren't in the Federation. We had humans and Vulcans in the Federation, and interesting that they did not bring her back to humans. So there may be an unknown reason why Sarek adopted her.
0: And she doesn't seem very Vulcan. She seems very emotional.
1: Oh yeah, she's got the emotions of the yang. But maybe she's hung around a human, mostly human crew
0: for a while? But so did Spock.
1: Yeah, but he was half Vulcan.
0: I suppose. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay.
1: Even T'Pol started loosening up a little bit.
0: Yeah, but she was also addicted to drugs.
1: I mean, space drug. I mean,
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: Trillium D is another thing that, uh, different topic.
0: Yes. All right. So she calls Sarek and he gives her advice where he says, Vulcans have kept Klingons at bay because we always fired first and Klingons respect our show of aggression.
1: Yeah, that was fascinating to me. I thought, like, it makes sense, but it it does, but also it's weird to hear Vulcans say, like, yeah, we just shot.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine Klingons just taking one on the chin. Like, they say, oh, the Vulcans shot us, they're cool, we're going to leave them alone. I feel like Klingons would meet force with force.
1: I suppose it's all in the context, too. If they just happened to come across, across each other in deep space, where in territory no one had claimed... It's hard to say, because we don't know the context of the situations, why, how they encountered each other, either.
0: Uh, I feel like the way Sarek portrayed the Klingons, as it's almost as if that they are like a dog and you're the master, and you need to prove to them who the master of the house is. And I don't think that's true. That doesn't fit with my perception of Klingons.
1: Uh, well, maybe not yours, but like, Enterprise, it was similar that way, too, especially in the first episode, even, Broken Bow. The Klingons were very rowdy. I'm going to say, even all this whole, whole series of Enterprise, the Klingons kind of like, they respected when Archer was a little uh, brazen and tough. So, I mean, there, there's some precedent.
0: Brazen and tough, yes, but threatening?
1: I suppose, yeah, context. Yeah. I think I think that's what's missing here.
0: And so, Michael, nonetheless, buys into what Sarek is telling her and goes to the captain and says... We need to be aggressive. We need to fire on the ship that is just hanging out there after on cloaking before its reinforcements arrive, and the captain says, "No way, Jose, we are Starfleet. We don't fire first. Who is in the right?
1: You know that's a tough one um because again, she's a xenoanthropologist. She understands other cultures are very different uh this is uh Burnham, and then we have Captain Char Shaw, who you know they've been working together for seven years he's got a she's got a tough decision. she's trying to reflects Starfleet ideals, apparently she's also a soldier and she also wants to do that too. So she's having this internal fight, but she's siding with Starfleet where Burnham is siding with her gut instinct.
0: And the captain isn't the only one who wants to follow Starfleet protocol. There's also Lieutenant Saru, the alien on board.
1: Well, Saru wants to just run like tail like run like the dickens. So there's actually three different viewpoints.
0: That's true. I although I do appreciate that like in On The Next Generation, we always saw Worf recommending aggressive action, and he always got shot down. Yep, yep. And now we hear Lieutenant Saru saying, we should run and hide every chance we get. I will take any opportunity to not be put in harm's way.
1: Yes, yes. So I, I can understand why after seven years of that, you're not sure when... Uh... I want to listen to him or not.
0: Right. You know, I don't know what his threshold is. I don't know how often he's recommending a cowardly flight. Although sometimes cowardice is the better part of valor, or true, should I true. say discretion, rather.
1: I suspect, well, okay, they had some fun uh, banter at the beginning of the episode about actually uh, Burnham and Saru agreeing with each other on uh, there's someone out there. But in this situation, like he mentioned how um, his race of people was bred to be cowards and to know when they are about to die he, he likened it to being prey on um, for most of those species
0: which i thought was interesting because on earth i feel like he- his race would play the role of cattle where we breed them and slaughter them as food i can't imagine that even given enough time we would ever allow cows to evolve to join starfleet
1: Ah, you have not seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I read the books. I saw the movie. It's been a long time. I do remember there being a talking cow at the edge of the universe who was bred to be slaughtered and fed. Yes,
1: to enjoy being eaten.
0: (laughs) Right, but that's not Doug Jones' character. He doesn't enjoy facing death. He runs from it every chance he can get.
1: And so after a lot of years of that, I'm sure sometimes it's like, I'm sure if we should listen to him or not.
0: Right, and I'm... I'm interested in seeing where his character goes, because in this first episode, we really only have the three characters. We have mm-hmm. the captain, the commander, and the lieutenant. There are lots of other people on the bridge, including what seemed to be some sort of a little robot character.
1: Yeah, she was cool. It's almost like a Daft Punk robot.
0: <laughs> as long as it's a little bit more realistic than K-9 from Doctor Who. <laughs> Love K-9, but... Yeah.
1: Or or any of the sentient robots on TOS. Who talk like this and are going to murder you all.
0: Or, you know, uh, there were a lot of robots on TOS that looked just like humans. They were perfect androids, even more so than Data, as far as skin yeah. tone goes.
1: I was just watching one the other day with um with Mud in it.
0: Oh, right, and we'll be getting to that, uh, yes. the character of Harry Mud. But we didn't really get to know any other characters on the bridge, maybe because this show is not called Star Trek Shenzu.
1: Yes, that is an interesting thing. In the first episode, we do not see the, the Discovery one bit. Right, well, there hint of the discovery.
0: Yeah, there is a USS Discovery. That's what the show is named after, but it hasn't arrived yet in the first episode.
1: No, and I even took the note. When I was actually doing my notes, the second viewing, I'm like, I was writing down people's names because none of them stuck, other than the three main characters. There's a Mr. Gant on weapons. There's an Ensign Danby. Danby, I couldn't. I wasn't sure. Danby on Con or the Navigator. And, but none of these characters got an introduction like they do in other Star Trek series. I'm wondering if that's a hint.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about Encounter at Farpoint because we got time dedicated to each character to introduce the members of the ensemble, and that didn't really happen here. We have the three main characters, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, any one of the Klingons got more time than any of the humans who are not those three main characters. Yeah, like Volk. Oh, yeah, and one of the Klingons is an albino.
1: That was an interesting thing.
0: Because there was an albino Klingon on, on D-Space 9. Was there? There was an episode where Dax was recruited to fulfill a grudge held by these three Klingons right. from the original series.
1: I remember KIng Kor, and, uh... Koloth? Koloth.
0: Yeah, and they were out to kill the albino Klingon.
1: That's right. That's right. Was that the episode called The Albino, or am I thinking of TNG?
0: I'm not sure. I'm trying to pull up the word albino on memory alpha, and it's loading slowly. So I don't have evidence to that fact, but there is a Reddit thread where somebody was postulating, are these the same Klingon? And the conclusion seemed to be, no, it's not.
1: If it is, it could be coincidence. I mean, it's also, albinos are not an uncommon, but not unheard of thing in any race. So, hey.
0: Hmm. But and also he could be
1: some uh, prophesized person we don't know about yet.
0: It's true, and there seems to be a lot of prophecies with the Klingons. Not only yes. this beacon, but also the child of Tom Paris and B'Elanna Taurus.
1: Yep. Oh God, I just read. The- oh, what do they call? <laughs> oh, what do they call there?
0: Moving on. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. Like I don't know. So whatever. Uh, so Michael and the captain have a difference of opinion, very vehemently, <laughs> on bad. how to approach the Klingons, and. I don't approve of what Michael did. I don't either. It was very obvious,
1: especially even to Sauru, that she was not telling the truth about the captain. She says, just get the weapons ready in case the captain decides to fire. And then like 20 seconds later, fire!
0: And this was after she used the Vulcan neck pinch on the captain. Like she assaulted her commanding officer. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe that Michael Burnham can continue to be a main character on this show, especially when they start off by talking about her getting her own command, because she, everything she did in this episode is a court martialable offense.
1: Oh, absolutely. She, like, she, they set her up for this, this, um, you know, you're going to move on. It's almost like it's kind of hinting us, like, is she going to be the captain of the Discovery to us as a viewer if, uh, if, you don't know what's going to happen? And, and then, um, not, that's not a second episode allusion. That's to the previews allusion to the trailer. And all of a sudden, she does this. She acts rash. She acts, she acts like almost like on impulse instead of thinking about her career. And that's a that's a Starfleet thing. That's a common trope in Starfleet too.
0: Do you think she is acting so emotional due to her own history with the Klingons?
1: I oh I, I think absolutely. With a combination of her knowledge of what the Vulcans how they treated her, the Klingons, and her past with the Vulc or uh, the Klingons. Um. Absolutely.
0: Now, also, they said in Discovery that nobody had really seen or heard from the Klingons in 100 years, which I suppose is possible because Enterprise, the pilot episode Broken Bow, was set in the year 2151, and the original series was set in 2265, and Discovery is 10 years before that. So if this is 2255, that's exactly 104 years after Broken Bow, and... Enterprise went off the air four years after Broken uh-huh. Bow, so that would be exactly 100 years after Enterprise went off the air.
1: Yeah, and th- I was listening to the lines a bit better. They actually they allow uh, they said almost no one has seen a Klingon in 100 years. And then someone else mentioned, I think it was a Sarek even, fleeting encounters with the Klingons.
0: Right. Some, so, somebody must have seen them if they killed Michael's parents.
1: Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So something happened back there. But we, yeah, apparently they've been kind of in hiding, much like the Romulans all these years.
0: I wonder why that is. A, that, again, does not seem very Klingon-like. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, then Kirk very much knows the Klingons when they come back a few years later.
0: Yeah, and that's only 10 years after Discovery.
1: Uh-huh. So we'll, we'll find out, I'm sure.
0: So the show ends on a cliffhanger where the captain pulls a rifle or a laser or phaser or whatever on Michael and says, Stand down. And then all the Klingon reinforcements arrive and they're at a standoff and end scene.
1: Yeah, that was powerful seeing 24 Klingon ships in front of the Shenzhou.
0: I thought it was impressive when two Klingon warships decloaked off the bow of the Enterprise in the Next Generation episode, The Defector. And here we have, like, two dozen, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Whew, that's a lot.
1: That, that's As a captain, you, they're like, oh, God, what's going to
0: happen? Now, it's not unusual for Star Trek pilots to be two hours long, but for it to be a two-parter is rare, because in Next Generation, we only had three two-parters. There was Best of Both Worlds, there was Time Zero, and there was Sins of the Father.
1: Uh, weren't there more, like, uh, Reunification?
0: Oh, but they didn't come out as two hours. Oh, you're right, I'm sorry, you're right. There was Reunification. And- oh, and Chain of Command.
1: But it was rare to get two-hour events. Which I think in TNG really had two.
0: Uh, the premiere and the and po- the, the finale? Yeah. Yeah, and here we have, it's not a two-hour episode, it's two one-hour episodes with a cliffhanger. Uh-huh. You know, we only had two cliffhangers. Oh, and Descent. Descent was also a two-parter in Next Generation. Yeah. So we had three two-parters. Descent, Best of Both Worlds, and Time Zero. And here we are, the very first episode of Discovery is a two-parter. And I can't help but wonder if they purposely structured that to get people to sign up for CBS All Access.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, CBS has been kind of... uh, I'm going to be one of those ones who's unsubscribing the instant... Discovery is done, (laughs) and then resubbing when it's back.
0: So you think that the network structure defined the structure of the show?
1: I think... It's hard to say, but I have little faith in CBS.
0: I mean, it is a different world where once upon a time, I think it was like different studios would make shows and pitch them to the networks, and now it's the networks themselves making shows. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot more creative control over what they're airing, which in this case, could be good or bad.
1: Yeah, I think we should avoid the politics of Hollywood <laughs> as when we can, because it's more about Star Trek. That's true. There is a place for that in some discussions, but I don't know if that's right now.
0: Especially when there's so much else to discuss. Yeah. Uh, what else about this episode caught your eye? Because you saw the first episode twice and watched the second episode, which we're not talking about yet, whereas I've seen the first episode once, and that's it so far.
1: I uh, things that stood out to me is they seem to borrow a lot from the Calvin universe in the uh, the movie universe or the recent movie universe mm-hmm. in the design of some of the things. Uh, obvious like huge screens. Um, what was it the the Franklin? I uh, 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 think it's look more. What am I really looking for? Mechanical, um, tough, grainy on the Shenzhou, and I like that a lot.
0: Utilitarian.
1: Utilitarian is a good word to put. Yeah, I like that a lot. That uh, stood up to me, and I thought it was really cool. Oh, oh! Something I wrote down: the bridge is not on deck one,
0: and it's upside down.
1: Yeah, it's on the bottom of the saucer section. We, I don't think we've ever seen that before.
0: Why, why did they do that? I'm, I think that's going to be confusing as time goes on.
1: I, I don't know. We will find out. But I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it took me—I mean, it took me like a while to realize that. Like, wait a minute, no, no. Like, even though they show it right at the beginning, it didn't really click until later on. Like, wait a minute.
0: Yeah, I think I need to watch it again, because now that you mention it, I'm not sure I understand the correct orientation of the ship.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, because, uh, yeah, that's actually probably why we didn't catch it right away, because that opening scene where we uh, zoom in into the bridge, the ship is, an, is at an angle, and the camera corrects itself, but it's very, it's kind of subtle. Hmm. And so, yeah, the bridge is in the bottom, and also something neat they do in here that a lot of people have been complaining about on the internet for years is, why are all the ships on the same axis? This time, they were not. They weren't? No, the Shenzhou and the Klingon uh, ship were actually off kilter from each other when the Klingon ship decloaked.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh Uh-huh. You're right, because ships usually travel on a plane.
1: In in the Star Trek universe.
0: Right. (laughs) Which is totally unnecessary in Uh three-dimensional space.
1: So that's one of those little complaints that have been on the internet for 20 years or whatever, since the internet became a thing. And (laughs) here they are. No, you're right. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Yep, ever since the internet was invented, people have been complaining about Star Trek.
1: Pretty much, including Reddit last night. I was like, there was no point in going to Star Trek Reddit last night.
0: Oh yeah, Uh, I mean, fandom can be its own topic, but I saw somebody post a message on the Star Trek Discovery subreddit saying, I love Discovery and I'm done with Star Trek fandom because you guys are incredibly toxic.
1: (laughs) I have the same complaints between Star Trek and Dr. Hugh and a few other things where, Some of the best and worst parts about uh, these fandoms are the community.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, that has not been my experience with Star Trek fandom. And, of course, you and I are propagating Star Trek fandom by hosting a podcast about Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to, at this time, respectfully disagree. People's experiences are unique to them and completely valid. That has not been my experience. I respect that it may be other people's. But Star Trek Discovery, we're coming up on like the last 10 minutes of this podcast. I have a few more things I want to mention, but what else have you noticed that you wrote down?
1: I really liked Burnham's line to the Admiral, saying, It would be unwise to confuse race and culture.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that line was given enough time to sink in. It no, wasn't. It wasn't. Re- it wasn't really received well by the admiral. He just kind of like, whatever. I already said my piece, and you're just coming up with excuses.
1: Yeah, this was uh, that was. I watched that and I was just like, wow. That, I mean, that was a great line. I rewound it a couple of times just to watch that, and to make sure I even wrote it down right. But just to get that feeling, I was like, no, the admiral was just like. Admiral at the moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ooh, you showed him Sabriel.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, it's a common Star Trek trope. He's, I don't think he's actually a bad admiral, but he was not listening to a first officer. And I think he should have been taking some insight from... Okay, he chalked it up to, oh, Klingons just terrorized, or, you know, did a terrorist attack on you when you were little, so this is why you had that opinion. When, you know, she's an anthropologist as well. And she was raised by Vulcans, so she's got some logic in her.
0: But why isn't more of the bridge crew familiar with the Vulcan history with the Klingons? Because Vulcans and humans are both part of the Federation at this point, and yet it seems like a trade secret that Sarek shares only with his family or foster family of how an entire race kept an entire other race at bay. Has nobody thought about this in the hundred years since the Klingons disappeared?
1: Vulcans are very, very secretive. That's true. We saw that in Enterprise all the time, and... Yeah, they just well, we did not know about um, Romulans. Well, we didn't know about um, Burnham. Oh, <laughs> like like if it's not relevant, why talk about it? And if it is relevant, uh, you don't need to know about it unless you know I, I deem it worthy.
0: Wait, what? What were they not talking about?
1: Oh, uh, like like um, the Vulcans sharing their Klingon knowledge. Okay. I mean, uh, even in original series or Enterprise Vulcans. Uh, not help or the the whole contention between the warp by project right, and whatnot. And it's it's very much a Vulcan thing to uh keep things to yourself until absolutely necessary.
0: But it seems like given the dire circumstances, Michael could have called up Sarek right on the bridge and had him talk to the captain.
1: I don't know if he would have divulged the information then. Hmm. Just have that connection.
0: Although it did it did remind me of when Chris Pine called Leonard Nimoy yep. to say, how do I deal with Khan?
1: Yeah, that's. I was thinking the same thing. However, I think he called Spock instead of Leonard
0: Nimoy. And it was Captain Kirk, <laughs> not Chris Pine. <laughs> yes. But, I, well, I mean, there have been so many different Kirks by now, I want to clarify yeah. which Kirk.
1: No, absolutely. no I, it's actually kind of like I joked about last episode, where I remember people by their roles.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, so it seems, however, when you're dealing with an unprecedented threat to the Federation, you either call Spock or his dad.
1: Pretty much. It seems like that, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and they're going to give you the deus ex machina. Although, in this case, it didn't work out because the captain didn't buy in.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: What about the episode... uh, uh, Do you want to talk about it? Did you notice? Or was it neat?
0: Of the stuff we haven't mentioned already, the opening credits.
1: Oh, yes, that was... That was I saw the little intro they had about the music a few days before the episode came out. Like they talked to um, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the composer, and he said he was trying to allude to the original series in a few bits, and he totally did it. He nailed it.
0: Yeah, especially with the closing tones. I only watched the first episode once, and I have not watched the video with the opening credits or the song being conducted, but it definitely has some of the exact same chords as the original series.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really well done, and uh, another lot of the internet is not happy about the title credits, but or, yeah, the, the whole sequence itself. What do you think?
0: I found it rather aloof, and, I don't know, like, it basically, it looked like a series of blueprints, of mechanical breakdowns of equipment used by Starfleet, and that is not at all what Star Trek is about, so in that sense, I was disappointed.
1: Yeah, I'm still uncertain. I th- I'm wondering if it's going to have more to do with it once you get to Discovery itself. Because right now, and honestly, it felt like a Westworld, Westworld intro to me than Star Trek.
0: I haven't seen the Westworld intro, but I can I know about the show, and I can uh-huh. see how this would be a better fit for that show. That's very astute.
1: Yeah, so that, that's, that was totally giving me that vibe. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti this title sequence. Yet. I'm just like, I'm going to wait and see. If this is relevant, or if it's just kind of like, this is our thing, we're doing it our way.
0: Yeah, I do want to listen to the song outside the context of the visuals, and so I can focus on that. But I am—I can tell you I'm disappointed that it wasn't performed by Rod Stewart. <laughs> no, not really. you got
1: to have faith in the heart, Ken.
0: I do, I do. It's been a long time.
1: Actually, that wasn't performed by Rod Stewart either, it was just his song.
0: Oh, Russell Watson?
1: Russell Watson, it was composed by Diane Warren. I'm That's-
0: sorry. I, I am one of the few people I know who actually likes that song. I,
1: but... I I do, too.
0: Oh, oh, hey, we're in good company. Yeah, Yay. we're the
1: only two people I think that do.
0: And that's why we have Transporter Lock. <laughs> uh, let's see. So another thing I want to ask is my Twitter friend, Yesterbits, asked if this would be a good show to watch if you've never watched Star Trek before. And I linked him to the Discovery Primer that CBS put out, which introduces you to the setting and the characters, etc. There's a link to that in the show notes. But the question remains if you have never seen any Star Trek before, is Discovery a good place to start?
1: I, you know, it's tough. It's almost too soon to tell for Mm -hmm. me. um, Because there's so much of it that is so familiar to me of Star Trek, where, you know, I know what General Order 1 is. Does that even matter to anyone else? Like, honestly. I don't think the scene, I don't think it mattered at all. So it's okay to just go, what was that? Eh, whatever, okay. Right. Um, knowing that they're Klingon. Like, like I mean, everybody knows what, a, or has heard of the word Klingon by now, even if you don't watch the show. It's just part of culture. And so they, they do introduce them that way. Like, oh, here's their icon. This is how you know it's a Klingon right away. So I could see, like, maybe, yes, I think it's something you could watch as a complete newbie and get something out of it.
0: Yeah, there aren't a lot of callbacks yet. I know that Sarek is a familiar character, and there will be at least one more in episodes to come, but you don't need to know them. Uh, I, I think it might be hard to acclimate to the idea that, well, the show does give you some sense that Sarek and Vulcans are very logical and Klingons are very warlike, and so I think you get that idea. But one thing that might make it a little bit harder to follow is that unlike Next Generation, which is you know very thoughtful and... A lot of dialogue, uh, you know, the encounter at Firepoint gave you time to absorb everything. Discovery is very fast-paced. It's not like any Star Trek I've seen before. It's sort of a mix between the diplomacy of previous TV shows and the action of the movies.
1: It's Absolutely. Or even the arc of the later DS9 episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just gives you right in there. There's a little time to think and process, which maybe that's what they're going for. TV has changed in the last 50 years.
0: It absolutely has, even in the last 12 years. In that sense, this show reminds me a little bit of The Expanse.
1: Which I have not watched.
0: So I watched the pilot episode because Susan Arndt absolutely loves it. And her opinion weighs very heavily with me. I didn't like it, though. So we're going to disagree on that one. It gave me a sense for what modern space shows are like a little bit. You know, it's uh, a lot of intrigue, very fast-paced... Uh, re- relatively dark, and I think we're getting some of that with Discovery, and I don't think that's a bad thing.
1: Same here. Uh, I love, I mean, I honestly, I'm honestly, i one of those people who have said, I miss the Star Trek of in sci-fi, because right now, in our culture, sci-fi in a lot of places is very dark, uh, grungy, and almost depressing in a lot of ways, and I miss that utopian future of Star Trek, but I still think we see that here in Discovery, and right. I'm I'm excited to see where this goes and to see more of that. Even if there's, once in a while, you know, there's going to be fist-to-cuffs in a fight. I understand that, and it's going to be hardships, but I'm excited to see what we see Star Trek again as it is as Star Trek.
0: Right. Roddenberry would never have approved of this because he always felt that there should be no internal conflict among crew. That by the time we evolve to this point in the future, humanity has resolved its inner conflicts okay. we saw that rule go out the window with d space nine in the introduction of section 31 oh yeah you know and that was the first star trek that was created after roddenberry passed away and i thought it was fantastic and i think discovery is doing some of the same thing where we see these internal conflicts already in the pilot episode
1: yeah they seem to have learned some things in there that i'm happy for it
0: mm-hmm and so the first episode, as we said, ends on a cliffhanger. I am definitely tuned in for the second episode. I'm going to watch it tonight to see how this cliffhanger resolves itself and hopefully will end on board the discovery. You know whether or not we do and don't spoil it for me.
1: Oh, absolutely not.
0: Uh, but we are going to be recording another episode of this podcast almost immediately within the next 24 hours and airing it. And then we're going to be on our weekly schedule paralleling the TV show, which airs every Sunday night
1: yes yes so uh you're gonna have what three times the ken and Bri this week week and a half as you normally will have
0: and hopefully if you can get past that overdose you can <laughs> you'll stay in for the long haul <laughs> any closing shots before we close handling frequencies
1: oh I, there was one thing i noted on my notes that i did not mention before Ken, before we close let's hear it they went full uh contact in the movie on burnham's recordings of the klingon ship or the beacon she went there, recorded everything, and then when she got back, she was out. She was unconscious for three hours, and the crew had no idea what happened. When she oh, was just like
0: there. Jodie Foster. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> well, you know, maybe they'll run some file recovery software and they'll find it.
1: Yeah, maybe it was still running. Maybe it's still running.
0: Because so far we've only seen like the observation lounge, the bridge, Michael's quarters, and a little bit of sick bay. Who knows what other departments are on board the Shenzhou? There could be an IT department.
1: Yeah. Well, there, has- there better be.
0: All right, so with that parting shot, we will be recording more Transporter Lock. I hope everybody stays tuned. Thanks, Bree.
1: Thank you, Ken. If you've enjoyed this episode,
0: please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at Transporter Lock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at transporterlock.com.